Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. That's me. This is a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to different types of creative people. Writers, singers, actors. Uh, I once talked to somebody who made cartoons out of dead houseflies. Um, anything creative and how they do it, how they manage it in their lives, how they hang in there. Uh, that's my favorite thing to talk about. My guest today is Matthew Todd. He is the author of a beautiful new coffee table book called Pride, all about the journey to LGBTQ equality. Uh, it's a beautiful book, beautiful pictures, wonderful text, uh, a mix of um, American uh, history as well as British, because uh, Matthew is in London and based there. Um, where he worked for Attitude Magazine for a very long time, one of my favorite uh, magazines. So before we get to the interview, though, I just want to mention a couple of things. Um, I write for a podcast called Imagine Life, and one of my episodes dropped a couple of weeks ago. It's called The Orphan. If you're looking for something to listen to that's life-affirming and fun, and you get to guess along and try to figure out who it is, it's a perfect Pride Month um, person. So go to wherever you listen to your podcasts and find Imagine Life and look for The Orphan. That's my episode. And it re recently debuted at number one on the iTunes fiction charts, which was a thrill. So there you go. And also, if you're looking for a way to refresh your Zoom, if you're still Zooming and connecting that way, but you're a little like, ugh, what do we talk about? Let us do a live game for you of You Don't Know My Life. It's so fun. It's like a real live game show. And, uh, you get to connect with your people, and nobody has to figure out what to say because the conversation and the stories come fast and fun and easy. So learn about that at youdon'tknowmylife.com. And now, without any further ado, here is Matthew Todd all the way from London. So live from London, right? You're in London. I am in London, yeah. London, London. it's Matthew Todd. He's the author of this beautiful new book called Pride. The story of the LGBTQ equality movement. It's like a beautiful coffee table book, and I love to look at it. And it's quite um, comprehensive and and also really beautiful. So congratulations on putting something so spectacular together. Oh, thanks very much. Um, yeah, it's exciting because um, it, I didn't know how big it would be and how nicely you know they would do such a great job with it. You know, the, the printing is fantastic, so that's really exciting. I'm really, I'm really uh, pleased that they've done such a great job. It's quite an accomplishment. When did you start on this? How did this book come about? Um, well, uh, I kind of am more well known in the UK for doing for my first book, which is called Straight Jacket, which is about uh, LGBT mental mental health, kind of like. Kind of like a British version of The Velvet Rage. Right, you know, Velvet... yeah, of course. I know yeah. that book. I yeah. know the author. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Love Alan Downs. Yeah. Like, so um, I, I was editing Attitude magazine, and uh, a no one had really heard of The Velvet Rage here. And my therapist gave it to me, I think, about 12 years ago. And it was like a real epiphany reading it. And I wrote a big cover story for Attitude saying, um, uh, we found the secret to being gay and happy. And, and it really blew up. It really blew up. Like I had lots of people in the, in the office saying, you know, you shouldn't do that because it's a controversial thing to talk about, to talk about gay mental health. Because, you know, in the past, we've been told that, you know, being gay in itself was a mental illness. So it was a touchy thing. Right. But we have massive so we have post to be perfect. We have to be perfect, which is what the point of the Velvet Rage is, you know. 
Absolutely, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And uh, we just got this massive post bag, more letters than we'd ever had before or since, I believe. And um, and so I ended up writing a book, which has been a hit here. And um, in that, I say one of one of the. There's a whole kind of chapter at the end about things which I think we should do. So, for instance, you know, like well, a lot, a lot there's loads of things like being nice to each other for a start. That's always good, like on Grinder and yeah. other apps. Um, but one of them was about just understanding our history because I think we do exist in this kind of cultural cultural vacuum. And I was talking to various friends and it turned out that the publishers in the UK, because it came out last year in the UK, were looking to do a book to time with the 50th anniversary of, of Stonewall. Nice. So, so that was, we kind of went back and forth about how we should do it, what we should do. Um, yeah, and, and so we ended up doing this. And they originally wanted, actually, they wanted a, a history of the Stonewall riots, but it's such a kind of um, such a huge and kind of controversial subject with everybody arguing about, you know, who was there, who wasn't there, you know, right. who threw the first break, all that kind of stuff. And obviously, I'm not American; I'm, I'm based in London, so I, I didn't think that would be possible. But yeah, so we did this history, and they said to me at the time that it's um, the first book to look back at the whole thing of the last 50 years so um i don't know if that's the case i think it is here um so yeah that's that's how we did it and i I thought i knew everything that there was to know and i was so shocked about how much stuff i didn't know and i i still find that really powerful and moving that there's just that we do have such a huge history and and i think it's easy to just to feel disconnected from it especially young people now you know i'm not someone who's going to always bash young people but i i have met activists who seem to think that that the you know the, the struggle suddenly just began when they became conscious of it and and I think seeing this reaction from younger people as well just to, just about some of the people who 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 kind of you know stood their ground in years gone by has been really gratifying and, and moving for me. Sorry if that's a long answer. No, I love it. What were some of the stories or characters that you discovered that surprised you that you were like I did not know about this and it really captured your imagination. I mean, so much. I mean, I, I knew a lot of the British history because I, I came out when I was 16 in 1990 and I, ended, I bumped into Ian McKellen in heaven in the queue for the, the toilet at heaven. As you one do. Night. As you do, as you do. And I was completely drunk. And I'd seen him on a TV show saying that people needed to be respectful to the people who had done all the heavy lifting in the past. And I said, oh, I'm so grateful to you and all the amazing people. Um, so then I started I working. You, were a, you so, were a nice drunk. You were a gushy drunk. I was a gushy drunk. Yeah, I was a nice drunk, actually. I was never a nasty drunk. Um, so, yeah, I, I wrote to him and I ended up working at Stonewall for a bit. So I knew a lot of that. And I was there for some of the kind of stuff in the 90s, like the votes about the age of consent and Section 28, which was Mrs. Thatcher's homophobic law that she brought in in 1988. So I kind of slightly arrogantly thought I knew it all. But there's just there's just so much. I, I think most people don't know. I mean, I, I think it's really fantastic that we're now talking about people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera Stonewall. Yeah. There's so many people at Stonewall that we, uh, that I don't think are commonly known. I mean, I don't I, like I say I'm British, so I don't know if it's more well known in the states. But it doesn't seem to me that it's people like Craig Rodwell, who was this leading activist, who was there, who really galvanised uh, what what happened, and he was um, part of the Machine Society, the first big gay rights sure. organisation in the states. Right, yeah. 
and and how he got publicity for Stonewall, which I think was one of the major reasons why Stonewall became what it became, because he was very media savvy and, and, and made sure that it was reported in the newspapers and carried on the momentum. And then he and his partner, Fred Sargent, and some other people, this woman called Brenda Howard, who um, is, was colloquially referred to as the mother of gay pride, kind of went about organising and, and creating the, the, what we kind of see as the first big gay pride uh March to the Christopher Street commemoration day uh, in 1970. So just, I mean, they're just, just um, countless. And uh, that's one one story that I mentioned quite a lot is um, Morty Manford, who did, did you know him? Did you know of him? Did you know no, Morty Manford? I think I might have okay. heard the name, but I don't know the story. Yeah. Well, when I was younger, um, when I came out in the 90s, I remember hearing about this organisation for, for parents, families and friends of, of lesbians and gays, PFLAG, which had this group in Manchester. I, I never called them and I was too scared to give the number to my parents, but I was really grateful coming out of the 80s where this narrative was that being gay was the, the most terrible thing ever, that there was a group run by parents for other parents to support their, their gay and lesbian, as it was then, gay and lesbian kids, and, and help um, parents to, to keep families together and stop kids being rejected. So I never knew where that where that came from, where PFLAG came from. And it was a guy called Morty Manford who was a young uh, student at Columbia University in New York. He was at Stonewall, so it really politicised him because he was there on the night of the riots. And he became an activist, and a couple of years later he was handing out flyers at a dinner and he got bundled out by the police and kind of physically hurt a bit. His mother was outraged, and in 1972, she went on Pride with him. She went on the march with him saying, I can't remember the exact wordings, but basically saying, um, parents of lesbians and gays unite in support of your children. I think that's what it was, actually. And she said, she was called Jean, Jean Menthon. She was a teacher from Queens. And she said that um, she was just inundated with young people in tears, hugging her and kissing her. I get quite emotional when I think about it because, yeah. you know, it's, it's such, a, such a radical thing. They need then. a parental figure to make them feel okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of radical thing now even. it's You know, of course we do see, you know, more and more parents going on Pride marches and supporting their kids, but, but not, not all parents do, obviously. So in 1972, that was a huge thing. So she was overwhelmed by all these kids hugging her, and I think that gave her an idea of this problem that so many kids, young people, had been rejected by their parents. So she and her husband decided to start this group for, for parents of, of lesbians and, and gays. There were 20 people at the first one, but they persisted and it became this enormous organization which spread all across the states and then went across the world it's in just it's been i think there's a chapter in india and there's obviously one in the uk and i think israel and just like in so many countries it's just incredible and i think those people really show how it reminds me of Greta Thunberg i'm a big environmentalist and just that right, that thing that she has where she says no one is too small to make a difference and I think, I don't know if it's like this in the States, but it's certainly like it here. We kind of are quite nervous about protest. We, we kind of believe it's a bit, you know, it's a bit much, shouldn't really do it. We're a bit apologetic about it. And, and people feel like, you know, it has, to, it has to be something huge for people to protest. But actually, protest really is important and it, it really matters. And, and just, you know, someone like Jean Manford, just go, this mother going on a, on a pride march has then become this thing which has probably saved hundreds of thousands yeah. of kids we're keeping families together so that that stuff i just think those people need to be known about and honored and respected because 
you know, times are hard at the moment. We don't know where we're going in the world. The world's crazy. And I think, you know, if we can't acknowledge the people that, 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 that you know, put in the really hard work, then it just leaves us kind of free-floating. And I think it's quite dangerous. And I think we need to learn about what they did and, you know, how you how you organise and how you galvanise people. So, sorry, I'm ranting. Because I, I, I do feel very emotionally engaged to it, actually, especially as I'm getting older. Yeah, I think. you... you... You appreciate things more. I but just think of all the different people that have come out, and you always say, "Well, we'll have your mother call P flag. That'll help." Like we, we always think of that as the resource. Well, what if you were there? Wasn't that? And then it, you started it. That's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. Because we take a lot of the resources and the things that are there for granted. I think um, that that woman isn't still alive. I would imagine she probably. Guy Morty became um, a lawyer and was responsible for a key piece of uh, anti-discrimination legis- legislation. And he died, I think, in 94 or 96 um, from AIDS-related illnesses. I think he was 40, certainly in his wow. 40s. But she lived, She lived. Uh, I think she died within the last decade, I think. I can't nice. remember the top of my head, but she lived a, a long life, yeah, and saw you know, the, the, the fruits of what she had, what she had done. Talk to me about the relationship between the LGBTQ rights movement in the States and in the UK. Like, like, does something happen here and then it sort of reverberates over there or something happens over there and it reverberates over here in, in terms of like landmark, uh, you know, cases or, or, or laws or things like that. Is there any relation or is it, are they two sort of I think there's more of a relationship now maybe. Yeah. Um, but I think they were quite independent. I mean, when I was growing up, obviously pre-internet, you didn't really have a concept of what was going on in the States right. generally. You know, I remember like film releases being, you know, like months and months apart. Um, and I spoke to, uh, I, when I was going around the UK, touring bookshops and doing talks, I, I met uh, quite a lot of people and some older people. There was a couple of older activists I met in Canterbury, actually, who were very fired up about making sure we were telling the story of the UK because I think this this book was about was about kind of kind of grounded with Stonewall it came out with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall yeah. and I think it's sometimes easy to think of that as like you know day one of you know LGBT activism and that's right. that's that's not the case that you know there was the Compton's cafeteria right before and there was the Cooper's donut right very various little kind of skirmishes and things that happened before but like I say regarding Craig Rodwell they didn't really get much publicity and so they were kind of you know easier for the authorities yeah. to just kind of Stonewall had a good publicist it turns Stonewall out publicists we could all learn from Stonewall's publicists exactly uh, and it's the truth in a way because there were things yeah. that maybe had the same dynamics but they just didn't get written about so they didn't endure interesting yeah, absolutely. And obviously Stonewall was 69. Yeah. Uh, it, here in the six, it's two years before, in 1967, we had the partial decriminalization of sex between men under, over the age of 21. So there was momentum here before. Do you know the activist Peter Tatchell? Um, do you know him? He's a very, oh, he's a very, very, he's the kind of like the key, one of the key activists in, in the UK, and he, he was kind of kind of divisive for some people because it, there was these two groups in the UK. One was Stonewall, uh, which started in 1989, which was named after Stonewall, obviously, and there was a, and they were kind of a bit more serious, a bit maybe a bit more um, a bit more suited and a bit more kind of middle class, and they were about um, engaging with politicians in a in a kind of respectable language that they could understand. But there was another group that was a bit more angry called Outrage. Um, 
which was started by a guy called Peter Tatchell and another guy called Simon Watney and a couple of others who were a bit more angry and they weren't about the politics of respectability. There'd been kind of a spate of killings of men in toilets, in public toilets, where they were going to right. cruise for sex. And they felt that Stonewall wouldn't address those things because they didn't seem respectable enough. So Peter Tatchell was at the first um, uh, kind of march through... Um, uh, Highbury, which is actually near where I live, um, I think it was 1970. That was kind of like the first gay rights march here, but it wasn't an official one. It was a very small one. And I think he knew about Stonewall, and some of the activists there did and were motivated, but, but lots and lots of people didn't. So I think there was a separate momentum momentum uh, here as as well. Um, so I think I think there's definitely a kind of symbiotic relationship. It was really interesting actually when like when when we I remember hearing Harvey Feierstein talking, probably online after we had I think we were we went through a period from '97 when Tony Blair became prime minister where he really supported the, the gay and lesbian agenda as it was then, and and it got rid of a lot of the unfair laws. I mean it took a while, but um, they were pretty good, and we got civil partnerships, which at the time. I think actually the gay community here were quite happy with. We, we weren't really asking for marriage. We felt that fine, you know, mar- you, people consider marriage to be religious. You keep that. We'll have civil partnerships that gave us pretty much the same rights. It was a you know legal thing. Um, but I remember Harvey Feierstein talking and saying we absolutely we we don't want that. We want it to be equal. We want marriage. So I think that was there was a kind of uh, I think America kind of influenced us quite a lot. Yeah, to, yeah, as a kind of respect. that's interesting. Yeah, a bit of a wake up call. Actually, even Stonewall, Stonewall, which is the biggest group here, they got some criticism because they didn't support support marriage straight away. There was kind of um, lots of kind of dis- internal discussions where they didn't feel that it was the right thing to do. They did eventually. They came around, but yeah, I, I, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I didn't go last year, unfortunately. I would have loved to, um, but when you know the, there were kind of plane loads of kind of people flying over from London to to, to Stonewall. Right. So I think, I mean, the the UK and America have a very, you know, very close relationship, don't they? Yeah, for sure. The photos in your in your book are beautiful. Uh, how involved are you in finding them? Is that your job, or are you working with a team, or is there somebody that oversees that, or is that part of what you do? Um, you're asking me the most interesting questions that no one has asked me these kind of things before, but it's, it's interesting to me too. So well, thank you. Incredible. Um, and now, is that your job or is it somebody else's job? And as an author, you must be so invested. Like when you find the perfect picture, you must be like, oh my God. You know? Well, I'm, I'm a lunatic, so I found it quite difficult. We had a picture, picture researcher and editor, and they went through and they made their choices, and then I went in and would look and kind of talk about, you know, what I felt was more important, and like going through layouts and saying, I don't know, maybe the smaller picture, um, making it bigger or whatever, you know, just right. just get with my kind of, I suppose, editor hat, hat on. But um, I was, but they did a fantastic job. They were really good. They found some really great pictures. But I guess I was kind of never happy. And I was like, oh, we need another picture of this. And we need another picture of that. And that's the frustrating thing, you know, that ultimately, um, you know, there's so much, you know, the book is kind of broken up into these kind of different sections, like nightlife or like entertainment yeah. and film, politics and religions. Uh, and you could write, you could write an entire book on you know on each of those each of those subjects. There's just so much. So that that was the biggest problem with the book about not being able to include as much stuff as I as I wanted to. Well, the pictures in there are beautiful. There's a picture of Diana, of Princess oh, Diana. Yeah. Uh, yeah, love her. She was. 
Talk to me about Princess Diana and, and her relationship with LGBT people. She was quite an ally at a time when it wasn't cool to, for some people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, again, as a kid, I suppose a lot of my emotional investment in this stuff is because it was so horrendous growing up in the 80s as a kid with HIV and AIDS happening and just the, like, insane homophobia that, that accompanied it. Um, I think that with Diana, I mean, I, I, I would have been 13, and that was in uh, 1987 where she, there's a, a hold up a picture. Where, can you see that? Yeah, oh, I've got it right this here. Is, this is an audio thing, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. Um, but when she when she shook hands with with a, a person who had AIDS, I mean, it was it was absolutely like the lead story on the news. It was in all the newspapers. I know it went all around the world. And I think that was a moment where, of course, you know, at the time, certainly in the West, HIV and AIDS were predominantly disproportionately affecting gay and bisexual men. And so that was a real sign of her saying you know, I, I support these people and these people deserve com compassion and love and kindness. And she said that there's another great speech she made where she said, which always makes me quite teary, where she says something like, um, people feel, you know, they can't um, hug these, you know, people feel they can't hug someone who's got AIDS and heaven knows they need a hug. And it, yeah. that was just so kind of... Um, so confronting and so different from the rest of the narrative, which was just so... I mean, it's just hateful. I mean, the, 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 the British newspaper, The Sun, owned by Rupert Murdoch. I mean, I remember being a kid and um, one, at one point, I mean, every, every, certainly every week and every other day, there were just these hateful, hateful stories about gay people. At one point, they did an editorial referring to gay people as gay terrorists. Mm. I mean, there was, a, there was a cartoon. They, and The Sun was literally like, uh, sold three million copies a day. It was right. the, the its best-selling newspaper. There was one day where they where they uh, published a picture of a father hanging his gay son from a noose, from a, from a lamppost. And they, I mean, they, a, they published a, a picture of that in a newspaper. Cartoon, yeah, cartoon. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it was after a celebrity, it was after a celebrity had said that his son was gay. And so the next day they, they did this cartoon, and there was, was a kind of young guy looking up at his friend who was being hung from the neck with his eyes bulging and his tongue hanging out and a father marching into the house and the line at the bottom of the cartoon was see I told you Rodney that your dad wouldn't take it so well it, and I was I was hearing those messages and I think you know there was a whole generation of of kids like me LGBT kids growing up just hearing these messages that basically you deserve to be dead so when Diana did that even though she didn't explicitly say um you know, she was supporting gay people. And that's what it was, and it was very clearly that there was a there was a journalist in a British newspaper who, who called her the patron patron saint of sodomy. Um, <laughs> which I know I now feel like, like that's a badge of honor because sodomy yeah, is fantastic. Let's run with that. <laughs> yeah, but it's just it's just incredible the way that people um, the, the the way that people spoke then. I mean, I, I don't actually think. There's a chapter in my other book, Straightjacket, about the 80s, about all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's the thing that, that young, young people respond to the most because they, they are just so utterly shocked that newspapers could say... Could get away just, with that shit. Could get away with it, yeah. 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 Unbelievable. There's a picture in your, your book that, that really took me aback of gay men in a concentration camp with the triangles. Yeah. And, and I've seen images from films and bent and things like that, but I don't think I've ever actually seen... A photo of the real thing. Mm. Um, it's horrifying, isn't it? Yeah. Did, were you when that when that when that was like oh we're gonna we found this photo for the book. Talk to me about that photo and um, 
Well, it's a really. Um, I'm just trying to find it so I can have a look at it. Yeah, because we yeah, but that's right. We we used it as a double page spread, and we talked yeah. a lot about that. And it's such a shocking. It up and it's like boom. Yeah, it's such a confronting and shocking picture. But I think it's really important to know that. I mean, that was in my dad's lifetime. Yeah, you know, that wasn't that long that long ago, and I think that. You know, it's interesting that, like, when Trump came in, and I'm not saying that Trump is going to to do that, I hope, but when he came in, there were a lot of people saying, you know, he's like a Nazi. And I remember thinking, that's really, really hysterical. And, you know, touch wood, of course, we're not anywhere near that, of course. But, but But I think you can see how there are stages that politicians go through and bad things can happen and they build and they build and they build and they build and they build. I remember when, um, when we, there's Maureen Duffy who was the, who's written it because there's various people who write pieces for the book and she wrote a piece for this and she was the first, she's in her eighties now. She was the first British woman to come out as a lesbian in public life in the sixties on, on, on TV and a fight for, um, the, uh, partial decriminalization, which didn't affect her directly as she was a lesbian, which wasn't illegal. It was just sex between men. Um, and she, we gave her an award at the attitude, uh, awards that we do are a bit like the GQ awards. And we gave her this icon award and she got up and made this speech. This was 2014 and said, we must be really, really careful. We must be really, really vigilant. There are places around the world, of course, where, where it's still illegal, where you can be killed. But even here, you never know when things can turn back. And I remember having conversations with people about that the next day on Facebook and quite well-known authors saying that will never happen. That's not possible. We yeah, can we never lose the these rights. Point. Yeah. But we had Obama as president at that point, you know, like the first black president. Yeah. We didn't have Brexit here in the UK. Yeah. You know, look at where we are now with this pandemic and, you know, the whole world has gone through these massive shocks. So I just think it's really, really, really important to understand that bad things can happen. And, and I think, you know, we, we all, everyone, not just to, not just to LGBT people, but look at, look at what, what he's doing with trans healthcare and stuff. You know, it's so shocking and so dehumanizing and things you wouldn't think would be possible right. after the progress we've made. So it shows that, you you know, the, the stakes are high, you know, in our society. Yeah. I mean, and looking at the photo of the, of the camp, the, the men's faces are so clear that you could see different personalities in the, in the people. Yeah. They, they yeah. remind you of people you know, or uh, it's a very powerful image. Um, mm. So... Uh, you have a picture of Swan Lake, which I remember seeing when it came to uh, the the theater here in L.A., the Matthew Bourne piece. That was, that was a big you know, deal when it happened. It was a huge deal, wasn't it? And I actually, I that was a bit before my time. I remember, remember it happening. I remember people being very, very passionate about it. But it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that I think that there's a big, obviously a big section in the book about culture. And I think that, you know, like artists have, uh, don't, don't get much respect here in the sense that people like the, with the, the pandemic, the theater industry is in real, having a real problematic time at the moment. And the, we don't know what will survive. And, you know, lots of sectors are getting bailed out and funded, but the theater isn't. And I think it's very easy to, to, to take it for granted. But, you know, things like that, theatre has really had a huge impact. A friend of mine, um, Paris Lees, who's a trans, she writes in this yeah, book too. Yeah, I have she's, her on my yeah, post to ask you about, this cute... Oh, great. Yeah, I love her. She's a, she's a 
trans activist and she writes for British Vogue. Yeah. And she was saying to me, you know, that like trans rights, trans, you know, rights are, are, are difficult here. You know, that people are struggling. You know, there's a lot of pushback in in the papers. And she was saying to me, you know, how, how did you make such progression in, in the 90s, you know, with with gay stuff? And I think a lot of that actually was, was theatre and film and art. I think, you know, films like Beautiful Thing, which came out in 1996 about the two boys in yes, the London estate. I think that was a really big deal. And I think actually probably the biggest thing was soap opera characters. You know, I don't really watch soap very much now, but I think having characters in TV programs that people love who are gay or trans or lesbian or whatever, having those people in your home really, really makes Every a difference. Day. Yeah, because it humanizes people. I think I mentioned in the book about Will and Grace that um, Joe Biden had said it's yeah. probably the thing more to educate the American public than anything else. When you brought that up. Yeah, that the culture can make a huge difference. And there's a lot going on now with, with trans culture. I just watched the Netflix documentary Disclosure. Have you heard of this? Yes, yes, I haven't seen it yet, but um, yeah, I can't wait to watch it. It's really good. And what struck me about it, and I'll just share this with you and maybe it'll uh, resonate in some way, is all of the people that are interviewed are trans and they talk about the different images that they saw and how it affected them. But they all have a sense of humor, which really comes across. And I think it's kind of one of those things, if you can't find humor in some of this stuff, then, then, then you're fucked. But they also did a, uh, talked about Christine Jorgensen, who was the first person who had uh, gender reassignment surgery. And I had heard the name before, but I'd never seen images. And there's an image of, of her in your book. Quite a glamour puss. Like, I didn't know, like, I didn't know she was, like, show busy, you know? I, I, I don't know what I thought. But, like, she's on toe, she's on, in ballet slippers on point. Um, I think I just, I didn't think, I don't, I didn't know she was uh, a spotlight ready, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny because there's, the, there's her British um, counterpart who, who is April Ashley who was a model and she's she's kind of similar but you know very much of the time very kind of glamorous looking and it's interesting isn't it that um, I think when we're kind of um, we, we, you're kind of a, a constituency of people who have been so so repressed and so kind of especially during those teenage years where you're not able to be yourself uh, and I think a lot of us have that relationship with with culture and glamour and films and music and it's always this stuff that really does transport you and take you somewhere else because i don't know about you but you know like for me it was you know i mean it's such a cliche but but it's true you know like when i was six or seven i was obsessed with wizard of oz right then that taking to me to taking me to see theater and i was obsessed with that and then like i started seeing andrew lloyd Webber musicals like starlight express right. <laughs> which i kind of embarrassed to say but but became and then when i saw phantom of the opera when i was 16 i mean i was obsessed with it because i think we have that relationship with glamour and showbiz and all the rest of it which is really sounds really trite but actually it's probably really life-saving for people because it is overwhelming to to go through what we go through as as teenagers and i think that's why you know you go to a madonna concert or a beyonce concert and there are a huge 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 amount of lgbt people there because you know, we have this kind of semi kind of religious relationship with some of those people because they, they kind of, they are a lifeline when, when we grow up. So, you know, Madonna was that for me, you know. Yeah. I moved on from Phantom of the Opera to to uh, conical bras and... Um, yeah, semi 
Ambition. We're a similar age, and, I, and Madonna was my diva, for sure, and Blonde Ambition was the show, and, and that actually uh, well, led to my writing career, in a way, because I, uh, uh, I auditioned to be a dancer for that. Uh, I was a dancer oh. at the time, um, and I auditioned to be a dancer in Blonde Ambition, and I didn't get it, obviously, um, but the experience was so rich and funny to me that I wrote a first-person article about it, and that's I, I sent it to all these magazines, didn't know anybody, and Movie Line Magazine liked it. The editor there liked my letter. He says, if your, if your piece is as funny as your letter, you know, we're in business. And he started giving me work, and he ended up being my mentor. Uh, but it was because Madonna rejected me that um, I started writing. But that was... Crazy. that crazy. The diva at our time... I think there's a, a certain age where, you've, you you know, your diva's sort of... Uh, crystallized for you or whatever. But, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, did, so was Madonna at the audition? So she you, was so there. you, she was there. Uh, she had what, a little hat what, on. What was that like? Well, it was very exciting that she was there. And then the combination—I still remember it. It was very basic at first. So it was like Running Man and Roger Rabbits, and then Small and Sexy yeah. Roger Rabbits, and then she just typed out, like went down the road and said, "No, no, yes, yes." You know what I mean? And then I was yeah. out. But she was there, and uh, at the time. You know, it was at the height of her, uh, you know, fame. And I was just like, we're going to become best friends. I would daydream about it, but I also knew it was absurd. So that's the point of view of, view of the piece, uh, you know. Did you love her ongoing from then? I struggle with it. Um, but I, I uh, you know, nobody ever goes around saying, Madonna, what a nice lady. Like, she's just, <laughs> she's just seems, like, unpleasant as a person. Or, or just, you know, you know how some stars get cooler as they get older? Like, share, you know, they kind of click into what's important. Madonna's mm. still quite, I don't know. But I'm, I'm glad she's there, and I follow her on Instagram, and I buy every album, and I would love to see her shows. The last one was too expensive, but... Um, yeah, it was expensive, wasn't it? Yeah. She's been no, I, in my I, life, I have sure. It's it's weird, isn't it? Because I think I wonder sometimes because I talk to my friend about this. You know, we, and maybe when you have that that you know youthful thing where you really are obsessed with somebody, that then you just expect you kind of think I'm not necessarily conscious of you've invested so much in them and you want them to be what you want them to be. Like you know, there's a there's a great Instagram account, Bond Ambition Love, which is documenting day by day that that tour at the moment, and it really takes me back. I mean, I I saw that when I was 16. It was the first concert I saw, and it was completely. Life, like completely life changing. It was the only other person like uh, Princess Diana who was doing anything to counter the, the hateful homophobic narrative. So I suppose, yeah, now when you're getting older and you're kind of like, well, I want a proper dance song on Madame X and I want this and I want that, and you get really riled up about it. So I think that's a fascinating thing but, about our psychology. But I, but I also really admire that she's never played, she's never like, well, I'm just going to do the heads, fuck it, I'm exhausted. Like she stayed an artist. And I really, I, I really, you got to hand it to her for that. Um, and yeah. brought a lot of joy to my life. A few years ago, me and two friends made a short film called um, If We Took a Holiday. And my friend Nadia Ginsburg does this really genius Madonna impression. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, so I'll send you the link to the film. But it it's, the premise is uh, a gay guy of a certain age, a.k.a. me, got dumped by his boyfriend. And for his birthday... His actress friend Nadia is going to pretend to be Madonna all day, and they get to have a Madonna day, right? And then things go wrong. But I think that film captures my 
feeling about Madonna, which is that I cherish her and love her, and also she's a little full of shit, and it's fun to make fun of that, or you know what I mean? Like, so it, it has both, um, and that's kind of where I am with with Madonna. But boy, when I look back I, on my life, yeah, I've seen I've seen your film. It's great. I've seen that. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. That's oh, uh, a cool. lot. Of, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I love Nadia. She's fantastic, isn't she? She's so. I could watch her do it all day, but um, <laughs> there's a picture in your book of the Blonde Ambition tour, and I mm. went through and named every dancer by name. Of course, but I couldn't remember which was Jose and which was Luis, the Vogers. Oh, I can, I know. Did you see that documentary they did about, uh, was yes. it, I think, Strike a Pose, isn't Strike it? Did you see that? I did. Jose is the one on the, like, the, um, the, the kind of, the slimmer guy. The slimmer He's guy, kind of right, on, okay. And well, Luis, that's what I thought. Okay. A little side, a little sidebar Madonna digression. Um, yeah. Interesting that you put a picture of the American queerest folk as opposed to the British chorus book. Yeah, I I don't I can't remember why we did that. I think it was maybe because I think to just show that I suppose the impact that that show had when it I, I you know yeah. I, I just bigger, it's a bigger country, isn't it? And I guess it was yeah. so um, there was there was a lot of British stuff in the magazine, and I and I and I wanted to um, to talk about you know yeah. the the way things have changed in America as well. And I've only seen some of that. I've never seen it. I was thinking about buying the DVD and watching it because obviously it went on far longer than the English version it did. did. And it was hit and miss, but I'm glad I, I enjoyed watching it. Um, I was a huge fan of the original, and I, I got to meet and know Russell a bit, Russell T. Davis, oh, who I'm yeah. sure you probably know. But when I saw that first British Queerest Folk episode, a friend of mine had like a bootleg DVD or VHS, whatever it was, and we went to somebody's house and watched it. And as a writer, I had this epiphany watching it, which is, I think at that point in the 90s, if you're trying to write stories or make it break into television or whatever, all those things that I, that I was interested in, and you were gay, you felt like you had to give it a twist. Well, let's make, let's channel that into the teenage witch. But, you know, like, like, let's find a way to make it palatable or be sneaky about it. And I watched the British Queer Swoke and I thought, oh, we can just tell the truth? Mm. That felt like a permission slip that I never thought would happen. It, it was really like it really kind of lit a fire in me. And um, what, what do you remember about when that aired and when that started in the UK? I remember it very well. I remember um, going to the press launch and hearing a lot about it. Didn't know anything about Russell then. I don't think we knew who he was. He wasn't like famous then. Right. Uh, and being in, going into like the, I think it was maybe somewhere like the Soho Hotel, you know, where they do these press screenings and stuff. Right. And and it being like, you know, quite a lot of people I knew from like, I think I was deputy editor of Attitude at that point. I think it would have been 98, 99. Um, and, but there were, but there were just a huge amount of mainstream journalists from, from like the TV magazines and the tabloids of which those people were essentially had been very, very homophobic. And there was this kind of, Shock. I mean, I was completely overwhelmed by it and completely shocked by it because, like you say here, we'd never ever seen anything like that before, and and anything so, you know, unapologetic. I suppose. I mean, you know, like gay characters were always there. I suppose, in, in a, you know, and they could argue this was a good thing. You know, to try to, like I said earlier on, to to humanise people, to show them in a sympathetic light. Certainly in like UK um, soaps like EastEnders, um, but that was just like <laughs> flinging everything at the wall and just saying, you know, this is the way it is and yeah sort of letting like, it all hang out in a way 
Yeah, so it was just completely shocking. And I remember there was a big debate because I think it divided the gay community here. There were a lot of people that, that didn't like it and yeah. um, were offended and, and maybe uneasy. And I think you, you see that a lot, don't you? I mean, I, maybe it's changing a little bit now, but certainly over the years, you know, whenever there's been, you know, gay programs, you get this kind of like very charged reaction from, from gay people because we're, we're just so, I suppose have been so scared about is this going to portray us in a negative light is this going to portray us in a fair light is this going to be too, you know too honest about some things um i wrote a play that was on in london um called blowing whistles which is about um a couple in an open relationship yeah and uh, and, and it's kind of you know gets it's a kind of comedy drama, but it, you know, I had people saying to me, oh, some people, I mean, it did well, but some people say, oh, you, you, I, I don't want people to know that we do that, you know. Right. It's bad for our <laughs> but, image. Yeah, which I kind of like, I can understand that in a way, but it's like, I just think for our own sanity is what well, we need to tell the truth sometimes, don't we? To see it. I think, I think that's sort of what I'm learning in life is you gotta, the more authentic you are, the the better off you'll be, and and sometimes the the thing will come around. The thing that you want will come around, if if you're if you're true. I remember, I co-wrote a movie called Testosterone uh, that came out in 2003, and w I went to a few Q and A's with the director, and I I felt like the gay audiences wanted two things: they wanted to feel good about themselves, and they wanted to see cock, and uh, and. We gave them one of the two, but in a, it was very like I feel like their questions would be like I you know they were they were unsympathetic or they did this and then and then why didn't you have more nudity like they were so in the next yeah. breath they would be that crass or that bait whatever that horny um, which is fine I'm good I'm all good for that but then they were also a little high and mighty in the next breath it was interesting. Yeah, oh God, I mean, I, I mean, I, I you know, I love the gays, you know, like, I, I, I kind of, you know, I've been part of that and the, the, the political movement and worked in the magazine, that's what right. my books were about. You've yeah. been on the front lines of all of that stuff. Yeah, some of, the, some of it, some of it, yeah. But, 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 but we are difficult constituency of people to please. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I, I hear that all, all, the, all the time. And I think it is because, you know, like say, you've got, say we've gone through all this kind of trauma and, and there's an investment in, in how we're portrayed. I don't, you know, like this, have you heard of the term chemsex? Is that a term that is yeah. well... Yeah. So when that when that started being talked about here in the last kind of ten years or so, it was really difficult. You know, it was really p politicised. That there's a, definitely a very very serious problem in the UK, certainly in London and big cities, and lots of people overdosing and dying. Lots of you know uh, intentional overdoses and rapes and things like this. There's, there's a bit of a disastrous situation going on. And when people started writing about it in the newspapers, even though they were writing about it in a sympathetic way, and it was gay writers writing about it there was a lot of people getting very upset saying you you know that's not true you can't say that i don't know anyone like that i had a friend of mine when i wrote my first book was saying to me this is probably about 10 people from Vauxhall, which is the area where all the like hard dance druggy clubs are right. other people aren't doing it and then by the time the book came out he'd had to, he'd been in a relationship with someone who had a breakdown because they were using crystal meth and had to to leave so yeah it's it's it, it, there's there's been lots of plays here actually there were lots of plays about that that issue and it's, it's difficult it's really painful because i i want to see a nice i want to see the sound of music and everyone just having a lovely time right. and and see all the gays having a wonderful life and everything being perfect but 
it's not quite as simple as that. There are problems, and we, you know, I guess it's a ba- it's, it's it's a balance, isn't it? I suppose that, I suppose that's why Will and Grace is so great because you know I think we did, especially coming out of the era that we grew up in. I think you did need to see some, you know, some some positive portrayals where basically instead of you know us being the butt of the jokes, in Will and Grace, they're controlling that narrative. Right. You know, exactly clicking their fingers and they're determining who you should laugh at and I think that was a really revolutionary thing as well so um, yeah all hail all hail those kind of those programs it's yeah, interesting yeah it's interesting to think um, you got Prince William on the cover of Attitude um, yes and the, my love. it's one of the pictures of the book and I think it's my favorite photo I've ever seen of him um, oh good and that's kind of amazing were you the editor at the time and did you Make it yes. happen? Yeah, I think that happened because, um, excuse me, I because, actually because of because of Diana because I she, it meant so much to me as as a kid seeing her kind of support people with AIDS and HIV that I I just I I loved her and um, when she died it was really devastating as it was you know like, shocking for everybody wasn't it. And I had always thought, you know, like, she died in 1997, Attitude started in 1994. And one of the, as Attitude progressed over the years, one of the great things about him, one of the, oh, I love your dog, by the way. One of the great... Oh, do you see the great, him in the mirror? Yeah. <laughs> and so, he knows when we're going to record an interview and he likes to be on my bed. But, um... He needs to be on the cover of Attitude. Again. I know, he needs to be on the cover yeah. of Attitude. Yeah. Um... So, so yeah. So, I, one of the great things about the magazine was that we, we would, when when Attitude started, you couldn't get major celebrities, straight celebrities, to to be on the on the cover. Pretty much, they, they got to a point where they were buying in interviews because they couldn't do get get access to them themselves. And gradually, because Attitude was successful, actually with a big with Robbie Robbie Williams, who was a big star here in Take, still is a big star. We can take that. I love Robbie Williams so much. Oh yeah, he's like well, he lives he lives in LA, LA now. So I lucky saw him end. once at the coffee bean. I was like, I think that was Robbie Williams. So, yeah. <laughs> so he he gave a big interview to Attitude um, when he left Take That, which was a really big deal. So I think that started a momentum of big stars doing the magazine, and then yeah. eventually led to David Beckham doing it in two thousand and two, and Tony Blair in two thousand and five. So that was a big deal. And I always thought if Diana had been alive, she would have done it. And so I wrote, so when I was editor, I, I wrote to. Uh, Prince William and his people at Kensington Palace and just said I loved your mother and I think she would have done our cover and, and would you uh, could, could, would, would you do it and it would be you know the royal family had not done it and it never happened and would you consider it and I really respected his answer that they came back and they said it's something they're really interested in but he has to know about the subject he won't just lend uh, himself to some a, ch- a charity or an initiative or just do something that is that doesn't mean much he has to be absolutely have experience and be educated and understand an issue properly and so it took a few years and we were just back and forward back and forward ideas and then eventually um because i'd written this stuff about mental health and addiction he invited a group of us to go into the the palace and we took uh some kids that had been bullied and had developed problems afterwards some of whom had come through them you know there was kind of triumphant stories there was a really sad story of a mother who was trying to get a change in education policies because her son had been so bullied and ended up using drugs and died of an an overdose 
Um, so he met them and he sat for the cover. We took pictures and we had a big discussion. We, we took a really diverse group of, of LGBTQ people and he sat and we listened for, listened for an hour to their stories and was very engaged. He swore a couple of times at one point, which was really, really strange to see the, kind of the, the future king of England with this kind of organization, which is so kind of, you know, posh and straight laced and to, to hear him he was putting some of the some of the group at ease and, and, and swore and said it's okay you can swear it's fine what did so he just say really, do you remember what, how he swore I, I can't remember I can't, I can't remember to be honest what yeah. he said but it was I mean definitely said definitely said the F word yeah because I think he was just saying it because some of the kids had said it and had been very embarrassed about saying he said don't worry you're not going to hurt me right. by saying he did it to sort of break the ice and yeah, exactly. He was, he was, it was amazing. It was amazing. That was my last issue. That was the issue when I left in June 2016. So um, I was really, um, yeah, really, really pleased. And it was really interesting because we had some pushback when it came out on Twitter. Some people saying, you know, because he represents a very old institution. Of course. And people talk about colonialism and all that kind of stuff. But I think that he is in line to be the king and the head of the Commonwealth. And I think him sending a message, he made a statement that was the first ever royal statement saying no one should be bullied for their sexuality or, or for any other reason. And for them to say that, and it was reported all over the world, and, and I think in, to countries and to people who don't, you know, like LGBTQ people, I, I, I was really pleased that we were able to, to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. put that on the record. Yeah. What was it like to go to the palace? That was amazing. It was amazing. It was, it was very strange. Was there a lot of security? Was there a lot of hoops to jump through to go? Yeah, lots of security. And, um, yeah, they're, they're very strict about who's coming and they know who's coming and you have to bring ID and all that kind of stuff. And But, yeah, it's weird because... As you know, having interviewed celebrities, it's you know it's kind of amazing when you when you first start doing it and you meet people that you've idolised growing up, but then after a while that kind of sheen wears off a little bit and it becomes you know because you've done it so many times. Right. But going going to meet them was really just intense, I suppose, because you know growing up in Britain, you know the Queen is you know God. You, know, you kind of taught that from a very early age. So it was yeah, it was really intimidating. But he's. I really like him and Harry and Meghan and Kate. I like that. I really like them all. I, I just think that they're, they're much more modern and you know, and doing things like this, you know, reaching out to to people, you know, the way the world is now, you know, which is different from the way it was before. So, yeah, love them, love them. What did you think of uh, Meghan and Harry um, leaving? Oh my God, I'm going to be all over all over the the news of the world. No, we don't do that anymore. Um, I I'm really sad to see him leave, but I think the way the media attacked her, it was just so relentless. I mean, every single day there was. Just, I mean, like there, there's. There, I saw a, a, an internet site where they showed Kate doing things like that. I think there's pictures, pictures where Kate, when she was pregnant, where she kind of just has a hand on her stomach and and um, on, on her on her baby bump, and um, that they would say, "Oh, Kate with a protective hand on her baby bump." And then when Megan did it, it was like she's showing off. She's this. She's that. They they just were so unfair to her. And I'm really sad that he's not here anymore. But I totally respect him taking charge of his own life and the narrative, and 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 not having to live with. I think that the tabloids are really are nasty. They're really nasty here, and yeah. um, if you if you get on the wrong side of them, they 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 go for you. So yeah, are, are you hearing that weird? Oh no, it just stopped. There was like this yeah, weird. Hearing it. I was thinking. I wonder. I think it might be my computer that's hot. Oh okay. It's just it stopped, and we don't have too much more to go. Um, okay. And I'll I'll cut this little bit out. 
Um, the pictures that you chose for Moonlight, the movie, and Call Me By Your Name are my two favorite images from those movies. Like, the perfect, what I would have picked if I were, the scenes that I remember, the moments that I remember. Um, in the Call Me By Your Name image, it's the one where Timothy Chalamet sort of ducks his head down and leans it on Army Hammer. And it, I remember when the movie, it's not a typical lover's move. It's sort of quirky and unique. And it just mm. felt so real. And it, I, I don't know, it moves me to just look at the picture. Um, so. Well, I, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I was talking to a friend of mine who writes um, young adult books. Right. And I think that's a really, that's a, I think that's, a, I think all, some of these things that have happened that have really changed the way things are have been kind of under the radar. And I actually think, some of those those books are thing you know things like Love Simon. Yeah, uh, I think even though you know some people were a little bit sniffy about that film because it's so mainstream or whatever, but but I think these things are really fundamental in in, in shifting attitudes for for younger people and giving younger people those kind of narratives of the way you'd see it in a, in a kind of straight mainstream way, but giving them in in a, in a gay or a trans way. Yeah. So I th- so I think that I think they're really important, and I, and I think that the romance of that. My friend was saying that. Um, it tends to be young adult uh, gay books tend to be more successful if they're romantic rather than maybe being a bit more realistic about what young gay boys are doing, you know, a bit more sexual. Right. But I think there is a there is a desire out there to see um, kind of the innocent side of romance in a gay way because that, that's never existed in the cultural narrative. So I think at the moment there's there's a lot of people... Have a have a desire for that, and of course you can see sexualized stuff, you know, on the internet very easily. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons why that film was, you know, and is obviously done really well, wasn't yeah. it? Why, why it was so successful? I mean, I watched that film and I thought, if you don't want him to get a kiss in that Ferris wheel at the end of that movie, then you don't have a heart, you know. Like, I, it gets yeah. you on his side so successfully. I, I loved the experience of seeing that. It was really sweet. I saw a, a, a press screening, and then I went to see it again to see what it would be like with a real audience. And um, it was lovely. There's just lots of people, you know, a really nice mixed audience, and people were just you know, dabbing their eyes in the way you would with like just a you know a regular rom com. It was very sweet. I love it. Um, Elton John, have you interviewed him? Yes, several times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Good he's, old he's a gay icon, a British icon. He's he's incredible what's your favorite memory of him oh um, i think probably the first time i met him actually which was in 2005 which was a really big year for attitude uh was it 2004 that's right it's 2004 2004 and 2005 because it was our 20th anniversary you know what i actually can't remember if it was our 20th or 21st but it was around that time anyway and we we had a big party and um, for our 20th or, t- or our 21st anniversary. And it was the most exciting kind of celeb moment for Attitude. I think we, the Scissor Sisters, who were just kind of breaking out at that time and were huge in the UK, right. they, play, they played a set at the party. We had lots of re- uh, British gay celebrities like uh, Will Young, who was really, really successful here. And I don't know if you know him. It's yeah, a picture of him in the UK. Yeah, one yeah singers like yeah. pop idol yeah yeah and everybody loves him and that was great and some of the spice girls came and george michael came and elton and david came and um yeah david furnishes is, is 
yeah, kind of just been really, really supportive. They both have actually of, of, of attitude, and you know, like, I can't say enough good things about them. You know, I think Elton's story is so incredible that you know he was one of the first people in music to come out and had this wild life, a lot of drugs, and he himself says, you know, that he didn't, you know, during the time in the 80s when AIDS was really exploding, he was kind of on a lot of drugs and maybe feels that he didn't do what he could have done. And then when he got sober, he started up the Elton John AIDS Foundation and raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And I just, I just, I love them both. I really do. I, I just think that, you know, there's so many celebrities, as we all know, that make a lot of money, become very famous, don't use it to help anybody. You know, maybe go to the odd event, but I think they've really, you know, the, the amount of work they do for their AIDS foundation is, is incredible. So, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about them. Oh, and actually, that 2005, we had, the, we had a, yeah, it was a crazy year because um, that I'd met him at the party, but we, 2005 was a really big year because we had, I think we had Tony Blair's interview. We had Heath Ledger for Brokeback Mountain, which was really exciting for, for us. Right. Uh, and then one weekend we shot, David and Elton, I think we shot them in Canada for a cover because that's when Civil Partnership was coming in, in December, right. to mark that moment. And we also did Madonna. and it was, So we interviewed Madonna the same weekend that we were shooting David and Elton in Canada. So it was just a, yeah, it's a really special, special year that year. Did you interview Madonna yourself? Yes, I did, yeah. What was it like? I've interviewed her in a group setting, but never one-on-one. It was it was crazy. I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. It's weird when I think back because I was yeah completely obsessed and I was really really nervous. She was um, late, so I was did it at Stuart Price's house when Confessions was coming out. Right. And so sat sat there talking to him, and it was really lovely. And like, and I was like, oh my god, is she nice? Is she nice? Because I was really scared because I'd loved her so much and right. and was terrified terrified that you know she'd bite my head off or would hate me. And then when she arrived. Um, I was, I remember my first question, I just was flustered and I just said, I don't really know what I'm asking. And I literally was about to have an out-of-body experience and have a panic attack and run out, jump out the window. But um, we got on, yeah, we got on. And we had longer, She, she when the manager came to uh, to say, time's up, she said, no, no, it's fine, we we, have, we can do longer. And so, yeah, it was, it was great. And um, it was, yeah, that was, yeah, when you meet your heroes, thank God she was nice because I would have... Uh, yeah, never yeah, recovered. You don't want to be let down by somebody you admired so much. Um, yeah. I remember your Ricky Martin cover. That was sexy and wonderful. Oh, that was great too. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because of us being of a similar age, there's all these kind of people like Ricky Martin where there were rumors about them, but they hadn't come out. And so yeah. when they did, when they would do a gay press interview, it was a huge, huge deal. And now we take those things for granted. But at the time, they felt like a lot of the kind of battles were being kind of waged. Yeah. Uh, in the celebrity world, didn't it? You know, like when George Michael came out, it was a huge, huge deal. Yeah. Oh, do you have a favorite Spice Girl? Oh, um, you know what? I I quite like I, I like uh, I, I like Victoria because you know she's just kind of iconic and fashion and crazy and all that kind of. I love stuff. that you love Victoria. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't. I, to be honest, I really like. I, I kind of like them all, but I wasn't a massive Spice Girls fan. I did, I did, I did like them. I do respect what they've done. We did a shoot with Jerry Halliwell, which was uh, yeah. a couple of shoots. So I, I really liked her because she did. She broke out and she had those hits, and and I think she really connected with a gay fan base. But I remember actually from that party with with Elton John. I remember. Um, I think it was. Um, Jerry and uh, Baby Spice, Emma Bunton. And I remember thinking Emma Bunton just looked ridiculously glamorous and beautiful and amazing. And I was really 
like a bit like overwhelmed by how yeah. kind of dazzling she was more dazzling than you know the, than she you know in, in real life she looked kind of more glamorous and exciting so who's right. your favorite she's more than the girl next door um i kind of like jerry i kind of like i like some of her solo stuff i guess i don't i kind of like um mel b posh feels like I don't know. She feels like she's not that into the performing part of it, that she's a little phony. Oh, no, she doesn't in. care about it anymore, does she? You she feel doesn't like, she's like a bit embarrassed. Yeah, she's a little embarrassed. Like a cardboard cutout feels like it could do posh, but yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. And I remember when they broke out, though, the culture so needed something fun and young and energetic uh, mm. in the mid 90s because it had just come out of grunge and it was just exciting. It was just really, really fun for them. Um, it was a great moment, wasn't it? And it was great for... It, it just felt like um, there hadn't really been a group that felt really, like, triumphantly British. And yeah. I think there's, I think for us, that was really exciting. And also, it felt like there's that connection that America has, you like, with the Beatles and, like, a certain connection to some British pop stars. And they felt like it was really... It was quite unusual for us to see someone, a group like that, that felt very British to become so successful in America. Because yeah. everybody wants to be successful in America. So um, right. that was exciting. That was an exciting time. How has it been to be in the UK at this time in terms of what you guys are dealing with with the pandemic yourself, but also to look at America and be like, what in the hell is happening over there? Or are you too busy just managing your own lives to notice that uh, we're going well, down I'm, the toilet? Um, I want to be respectful because I don't live there. Right. But I think, yeah, it were, I mean, I, th I mean, I follow it very closely, and, and you know, it's it makes me want to cry, to be honest. I mean, it's just so demeaning of of America, isn't it? You know what I mean? Just to to see yeah. him in charge, and I think there's a there's a very similar thing here that we you, we've got Boris Johnson, and right. you know, five years ago, six, seven years ago, you would have never thought that Boris Johnson. People laughed when you talked about the idea of Boris Johnson because he was he was kind of considered to be a clown. He always has very messy hair. He just makes jokes. He's not very good at policy or details. He doesn't seem to be like the most moral person uh, alive. So it feels like at the same time we you know we've had Brexit and you've had Trump and we've yeah. got Boris. Very similar so, dynamics yeah. in some ways. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that kind of both of those leaders, you know, like America and the UK have, got, have done really badly in terms of inf infections and deaths, re re the coronavirus. And, and it's very similar mentality from both of those leaders where you feel like they care about power and money and they don't really care about people. That's how it feels. Right. And, and you know... How do you feel about it? I, I kind of... I kind of can't believe that it just keeps going to a new low and how mm. you know every day there's new headlines of corruption and bar yeah. and this like he and he just keeps threading the needle and getting away with it from the moment he won the election in that weird electoral college every little perfect storm of what could go wrong came together and he won and then that just keeps happening um i don't know i'm wondering when there'll be uh, any come up with. and now people are literally dying because of his ego um, yeah. I think we should somebody should just run ads that just say men are the worst, vote for women um, I just I watched the Hillary documentary the actually what's that? You, that new Hillary Clinton documentary have you seen it? no I, I, I uh, it's on my post-it to watch 
I just watched it. It was re- I found it really moving. I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's an it's an official kind of thing, sure. so it portrays her in a great light. But you know, like I have some issues with some of her policies and things. But when you just see the way that played out, the way the story played out, and the way the media gave him so much attention, and the way he was just so rude. It's just, um, it's. It, I think this is a time where it's interesting the way because you know this whole entertainment thing. You know that he comes from you know The Apprentice and stuff. It's just, it just there's something wrong with our culture. I think that in the West, where celebrity stuff and stuff that gets clicks and stuff that makes you know good stories and headlines gets all this attention and i think we're losing our ability to to understand what's important because climate change is a thing i i go on about all all the time and i'm really really terrified about it because i think you listen to what the scientists say and they're basically you know really they're they're really scared they're saying we're scared and yet it doesn't really get much attention in the media so i think it feels like we're heading towards disaster and yet it's all celebrity show busy stuff that gets all the attention and it's like there's got to be an understanding of, of what's important. And I think for LGBT people, I think climate, the, the environmental crisis is a disaster waiting to happen because as we've seen, when people go to the right, and it goes right back to that stuff, that that, that Nazi stuff at the, at the beginning, you know, Hitler only came to power and the Nazis only came to power because of this, you know, like post the Great Depression and, you know, when 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 economies collapse and our highly societies are highly stressed, people tend to lurch to the right. And, it just frightens me because I think that's what's going to happen with climate change because it's going to collapse economies. You know, David Attenborough, you know, the, the environmentalist David Attenborough yeah. uh, talked about the, it's going to cause the collapse of civilization. I mean, and everyone just goes, oh, yeah, fine, as if it's nothing to worry about. It, I'm really, really frightened, but I could go on about that for hours on end, but I won't. But, yeah, it's, I think these are very, very difficult times, aren't they? They're very – so many things are coming to a boil and exploding, and it, you have to sort of have hope that when things shake out, will be better and better cooler heads will prevail and um, yeah. you know a lot of, of the undercurrent I think the, the the virus has exposed all of these problems that were already going on in society and, and well it's amazing as well just like you know like I'm as consumerist and capitalist as anybody else but you know it, it's interesting that just I think we a uh, lot of my friends we've just been noticing when we haven't been able to go out for weeks on end it's noticeable that we just maybe we don't need as much of the stuff that we thought we needed, you know, not running around, you know, must buy new clothes, must buy this, must buy that. You know, like I say, I do that as much as anybody else, but I just think there's lots of lessons to be learned about the fact that, you know, friends and family are the most important thing. You know, community is really, really important. And I don't know what it's been like there, but, you know, here it's been all the kind of people that people generally disregard, you know, the supermarket workers and the delivery right. people that basically kept us all going. And like the, you know, they're like the healthcare workers, the NHS here, it's like, I really hope that people hang on to this and don't just, we don't go back to, to where we were before. And I think that that's just tying it back into the book. The thing I felt really energized about when I did this book was just again, like I said about um, the Manfords, you know, Gene Manford, who with PFLAG, that actually activism and doing things and actually, you know, the, the, I think people who have an interest in the status quo staying the way it is, they, ju- they, they kind of want to make you think there's nothing you can do to change anything. And it's just not true because look at, look at where we are. You know, in your lifetime and my lifetime, we've seen these enormous changes. I never thought I'd live to see, 
gay people be able to get married. I just, I just did not think that would be possible, considering how bad it was when I was younger and how entrenched those views were. But actually, you can make these things happen. And I think that's that in so many ways, you know, you see it with Black Lives Matter. I think we have to force change now because the, the other way, the, you know, the alternative is to, is too, is too scary to contemplate. Right. It's the other, the alternative isn't really survivable. It feels like yeah. it, it, they have not, there's nothing to lose really for a lot of people in terms of, you know, their day-to-day existence and, you know, especially yeah, in, we're coming to a crunch point. Right, yeah. Me. Um, the one, the way we've been going on, it's just not like with the with the environment. There's just not enough stuff. We just cannot go on. Like you see, the Arctic is meant to be like Father Christmas is meant to live. The Santa Claus, right? You know, it's a hundred degrees Fahrenheit at the moment, and it's on fire, and it's hardly in the news. To me, that should be the headline news. I mean, you know, it's like the planet is falling to bits, and it's not like I'm some hippie kind of tree hugger. The the planet is destabilizing. Right. You know, the scientists are saying we can't survive it long term if we don't stop it, and everyone's just acting like it's not happening. It really, it's like it plays it plays on my spirits heavily. Yeah. It, it really worries me because you know I don't know if you've got kids or niece or nephew or whatever, but you know I've got like godchildren, and I really worry about what the world's going to be like in thirty years' time if we don't sort this out. No, I, I agree. I don't have children, and I'm in a way I'm kind of relieved that I because mm. I, I don't know I wouldn't know how to protect them or provide mm. for them or I don't know mm. yeah um, how can people learn more about your book is there a, a website or um... obviously Amazon you know the, I think there's a really nice page on Amazon that they've got um, for the book with little bits about it and stuff and I've got a website as well which is matthewtodd.net but nice. yes, um, I, I'm really, really, it's a real, real thrill and an honor to be, for it to be on sale in America. It's my, it's a, it's, it's a big, yeah, it's a big deal for me. So it's very exciting. Well, and it's a real I, shame with the, with the pandemic, even though I don't fly very much, I would have, I would have come over to, to um, try to talk to people and meet people and promote it. So maybe, maybe next year we'll see. Maybe next year. Well, there's a lot of um, virtual pride parades and, you know, like things happening online. But, you know, yep. obviously festivals are canceled this year and parades, but your book is sort of a great, all right, so don't go to the parade, get Matthew's book and learn about um, the history of, of the movement and, um, and, yeah, you'll be enri- and you'll be enriched for it. So you left Attitude, so now are you focusing mostly on books or what's your... What's your focus yeah, now? That's, yeah, that's the idea. I mean, I because I don't know if you've seen this, but there was some really big protests over the last 18 months here about climate change. And so I've been quite involved with some of that. But yes, writing books and writing plays. And um, uh, I left Attitude in 2016 and my book Straight Jacket came out then as well about mental health. So I've been trying to focus on my own mental health and sorting all that stuff out. So I don't drink anymore, which you. has been really, really good. Yeah, it's been it's been quite hardcore. So yeah, trying to do that, trying to write some more books. That's the idea. Trying to write, I'm trying to write one at the moment about about the 80s actually, about what it was like to be a gay kid in the 80s. Nice. Well, I look forward to it. I want to read your previous book too. I, it sounds like I would really enjoy it. Is it available oh, in the US? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's it's. I don't think it's in. Uh, yeah, I think you can you can definitely get it on online. Fantastic. Yeah, for sure. But I'll, I'll send you a copy. I'll oh. get a copy sent to you. Oh, that would be wonderful. I love that. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. It's quite heavy going. It's quite hardcore. I don't hold any, don't hold back any punches. Yeah, just because I just felt like you know the whole journey had been about um, 
just talking about gay pride and how great everything was. And right. I like I say about being honest, I was really struggling, even though I was like editing, you know, National Gay Magazine and so many of my friends were struggling and there'd been suicides and drug addiction. And I just, no one was talking about it. And so I couldn't get any help because no one was talking about it. And so it's kind of about about that. And um, it's, it, yeah, it's it's hard. It's, it's upsetting to read, but hopefully it's got a positive, you know, some hope, some hope in it because I think there are things we can do to help each other as a community and stuff like being being kinder is 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 a big one just in terms of something that seems to resonate with people when i do talks about the way we talk to each other on apps like grinder and stuff like the racism the body shaming the nastiness i mean it's very complicated but you know i think i think we need to talk about self-loathing a bit because i think it seems to me that we fling that term around and very judgmental about people who have issues with being gay when the way we've grown up is hardly surprising is it i mean what we go through in the closet and stuff it's it's surprising when people really struggle so i think dragging that stuff out into the open and talking about it and having a sense of community i mean the whole the western culture is so individualistic now isn't it so i think I think we people always say about now that because everybody meets on apps, they don't meet in real life, they don't meet in bars. And there was certainly in, in the UK, and I'm sure in America too, that when HIV and AIDS happened, there was a sense of people pulling together. And it doesn't feel that there is that at the moment. Talking about pride, that's the name of your book. You know, for a while it was like, why do we need it anymore? Or it's just a bunch of drunk people, which it is a lot of the times. And then I've sort of reframed in my mind and I've sort of landed on this that like it's a group of people who grew up thinking there was something wrong with them and this mm. this is a celebration of the fact that there isn't that's how I've kind of come to think about pride for myself you know yeah. to try to 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 try to not complain about the parking and the crowds or whatever and and try to go with the right spirit and try to not be jaded about it and try to yeah. um to take if I'm going to go and be a part of a celebration or something to try to remember what it's really about. What is it about for you? Gay, gay pride, gay pride month. Well, it's really complicated actually, if I'm being honest. I mean, I think when, when I came out and I first started going, it was completely overwhelming to, you know, to, to see uh, having read that gay people were terrible right. to some see people actually who seem really what nice and fun and amazing and colorful and dressed up. And it seemed very diverse you know, um, to be able to be with those people was just amazing. And I was really scared the first time. I didn't go the first time, actually, but the, when I finally made it, I became obsessed with it. And it used to be the biggest thing in my early 20s. I mean, I was just, it was like Christmas. I was completely just, a, you know, living for this one day of the year where it felt like it could battle all those kind of shameful feelings and things I've been told. So, but now I'm older, like you say, I mean, it's difficult because I go now to London Um and it is, uh, I, I get quite misty-eyed when I see all these young people having an amazing time because there were loads when I was younger, but there's just so many more younger people who come out earlier and earlier right. and earlier. So I think that's wonderful. And I love seeing parents there. And it feels like there's, you know, it's a big group of people supporting one another, which is fantastic. The corporate side of it really is not great for me. You know, like right. here it sometimes feels just like a parade, like of advertising for massive companies, right. which is really disturbing because it's just so not what it's meant to be about. Um, also, the fact that it's just, you know, in London, there's a, there's the march and parade or whatever. And then some people kind of hang out in Trafalgar Square and some people go into Soho and it's completely like wall to wall. You can't move. It's quite claustrophobic. And it's just drink and, uh, and, and drugs. 
I mean, you know, I like I don't drink anymore, and I'm in recovery and stuff. So there's not a huge amount there for me. Um, but I'm not judgmental about it. I mean, it is what it is. I just think I, th- I think we are a group of people that have got who are collectively really traumatized. I think we've all been through deep, deep, deep trauma. Yeah. And I think I think we haven't yet really dealt with that. And I think most of us. I think Alan Downs really started that conversation, and I think most of us haven't really e- even understood that that's what's going on. Yeah. And there's a lot of people medicating with alcohol, with drugs, with sex, with whatever. And so it's a very intense energy. Saying that, so I, so, so I sometimes go into it and I, I kind of am a bit overwhelmed, but it's a really overwhelming, intense thing, isn't it, to see right. all of these kind of like you know, queer people kind of like, you know, interacting and stuff. I uh, So I go and I tend to kind of maybe get, take myself out and have a coffee and lunch and then just kind of nip around and then gently walk home. Whereas back in the day, I would be completely obliterated right. like everybody else. Um, but I did have a really nice time a couple of years ago where I went in Old Compton Street, which I'm sure you probably know in Soho in London, um, which is the big gay street where the big some of the bigger gay clubs are. Right. Pubs and- they, they had this little um, uh, coffee shop and I went in there in the morning and I was just going to stay for an hour and I had coffee and cheesecake and I ended up sitting there the whole day all the way to, to the evening just on my phone and just overlooking this kind of craziness where people just completely jam-packed and I really enjoyed that. I mean, it's, it's weird when you don't drink. I mean, and that's one of the problems with our culture it is so has been revolved around alcohol and nightclubs and right. drugs. So if you don't do those things, you know, and you're not in your 20s and you don't you're not smoking hot you know where where is there for you so i think that's a real that's and you a found real, the answer this cute little coffee shop with a good view yeah just me on my own it's the, right. the way it was always meant to be with like scrambled eggs and cheesecake that's it uh, but I do, yeah, I do think that's a big i do think that's a big problem i run a group called a change of scene in london which is a yeah. free social group look just once every month the gay and bisexual men just right. come and talk about stuff and it's amazing how many men in their 40s or 30s or older will come along and say they've been out for X amount of years, but they've never had a proper discussion with other gay men because so much of our culture is either sexual on apps or in nightclubs with booming dance music. Yeah. So we don't, ever, we don't take enough time to actually get to know each other and talk to each other. So I think that's an important thing that we need to do too. Yeah, I relate to that because I've, I've never drank or done drugs, um, never was into it. But I went to Dubai in 2014 and a, a gay friend was working there. And we went to, like, this secret gay club. And But I just appreciated the freedoms that I have in America to be openly gay yeah. and, and stuff. And so I came back, and it was Pride, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go, and I'm going to celebrate it. And I'm going to... Because I appreciate it so much more now, because I was in a place where it, was, it wasn't like that at all. And I get there, and I'm like, oh, this is about drunk people. <laughs> like, I was immediately, like, brought back down to earth and reminded, oh, no. The, the feeling that you were looking for, yeah, it's it's going to be pretty hard to find. This is about booze. Yeah, it's painful, <laughs> isn't it? Because I, I do think that's a kind of like, I tell I think I say in the book about that. And like sometimes I could, quite recently I got an email from somebody or a Twitter message from somebody in Kuwait saying how much he'd love the book and just how stressful it is and how you are not able to live your life in, in Kuwait and how much he would love to go on a, on a Pride March. And then it's those moments where I think, God, I, you know, I really should support it and I really should we should go. And I do enjoy it, you know, sometimes, depending on how I, how I feel. But, yeah, there have been times when I've gone to Pride. I remember there was one year where I just saw this guy, like, fitting on drugs and um, it just was really scary. It can be quite, yeah. it can be quite frightening because there are, you know, you know, we're an amazing community. We're so resilient and all the rest of it. But 
there is there are pro there's damage there's a lot of damage out there and sometimes you can really see it and it can be very painful and it's it's, it's definitely more painful when i don't drink so and i don't drink now so so um, you're aware of it more you're you, you're more sensitive uh, to it i think but, but, but maybe it's good because people are talking about these things a bit more now, aren't they? So where it was before, they were never they were never talked about. I think so. People are like, and I follow some of like the sexy guys on like social media or whatever, like the hotties and the, you know, yeah. and there'll be like gorgeous pictures and underwear and all the rest, and then like one day there'll be a post where they just fucking lose it, and they're like, I have to open up about, you know what I mean? Like, and they really open up about loneliness or drug abuse or depression or whatever it is and you're like oh wow all of that stuff i projected on your perfect life uh it it isn't it isn't there and it's just so interesting because you do see those posts from time to time where somebody that was trying to project a certain thing just crumbles Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's sometimes, it's not for everybody, certainly there's loads of really happy gay people. I think it's really important. I always say that. But, you know, I think to some degree, there's almost like feels like there's almost a proportionate relationship with how many selfless pictures people, how many shirtless selfies people put out on Instagram to how bad they feel about themselves. I mean, there's a, I think the opening chapter of Straightjacket, one of the early chapters is quite a bleak chapter. It's about the problem and uh, like the amount of people that I have known and celebrities with drug problems and the suicides and all the rest of it, and the, the very dark side of what's happened. And there's a bit where I talk about um, porn stars, gay porn stars. I mean, the amount of gay porn stars that have killed themselves or died of drug overdoses, mostly American, but some English ones too, is just... I mean, it's, it's so shocking. And I found a quote from Michael Lucas, the porn producer, and he said it's not just porn stars. He said that, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says there's lots of people, gay men that he knows from his local gym who have killed themselves. And, and I see that a lot, that um, a lot of these guys that will put, that don't feel very good about themselves and then put everything into the most, I think the most amazing pecs and the protein shakes and the steroids and, you know, the, the bodies. And, and that's how you get affirmation. I mean, that that's how, I, I mean... When I I post a lot about climate change on Instagram and, you know, I'll get like eight likes and then occasionally I'll post some sexy picture from something we did at Attitude and get like 250 likes. Oh, yeah. It's, I know the world is like that now, but it's like, I do think it's, I do think it's problematic because I think sometimes we just feel like we're all, we present ourselves like we're all just like products in a shop window and yeah. that's not good for anyone's mental health because no, no one is that, are they? You know, we're all three dimensional human beings. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting time to be alive, for sure. Um, I wanted, to, before I let you go, I wanted to ask about George Michael, and I forgot to before. He was on the cover of Attitude. I was a he huge was? George fan. What What's your history with him? Um, he, I remember when he came out, I remember that was a really big day in, in the Attitude office, you know, because we'd all yeah. been kind of, you know, everyone had been speculating about it. Um and everyone, we, I remember because he came out with that great song, didn't he? Um, Outside. Outside. Yeah. Um, that was all really exciting. He phoned up the Attitude office one day and the um, my, my predecessor, predecessor, the editor, then answered the phone. And he said, oh, it's, it's George Michael. And um, and uh, the, the editor then was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Didn't believe him. Had this whole conversation where where he didn't believe and apparently George was laughing on the other end and he had to call back another time to prove it was him but I think Adam the previous editor had a very good relationship with George he, they, they, he'd done the big uh, interview that put him on I think it was the first UK gay press interview and um, he went around to his house and, and did it and I remember I went around to, the, to George and Kenny's house for that we were going to do some talk of um, 
what was it? We were going to do some some program to help younger people who had been struggling or kicked out of home, and it, it didn't quite happen in the end. Um, but we went around for for a dinner with sponsors and things, and um, with with Kenny who was leading it, and then George popped up towards the end of the evening in his pajamas and played us some new songs, and it was lovely and amazing. Oh my gosh. And yeah, it was crazy. I was so glad I had the opportunity to, to meet him. And what's really sad is that, you know, he had a lot of these problems. You know, he had drug problems. He had a lot of personal problems before he died. And I was just, I, I just feel like I, I really, well, I, don't, I, I feel like I understand the problems that I had far more. And I understand the problems that a lot of my gay friends have had and how you can start untangling them, be it the drugs, the, the self-worth problems, body image, all that kind of stuff. And I just wish he hadn't died because I feel like I could have had a conversation with him about it and, and maybe helped him. But then, unfortunately, when you're in a place like that, lots of people don't come out of it, do they? So it just is what it is. But it's just such a... Such a shame because he just made such amazing pop music, didn't he? You know, oh that was gosh. just a, a great thing. And, then, you know, just there must be three or four albums worth of things that didn't come out. And just such a sad thing to lose such a great artist as well as, you know, for all his friends and family to lose a, a, a nice, kind person. And the stories you sort of hear are that he was quite generous and kind. Is that the like the word on the street of what he's like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think he gave a lot of money to charity and helped individual people. I remember hearing that there's a pro there was a pro there's a big like, daytime program here called This Morning. And yeah. um, he apparently there was I can't remember if there was a woman who was struggling with having IVF and she couldn't have kids and she was in tears on the program. And then they went to a commercial break, break and they came back afterwards and said, um, someone's just phoned in and given you the £60,000 that you need. And it was and it was George Michael. And I think he did a lot of things like that. He did famously he did a big concert, a free concert for nurses who had looked after his mother when she died of cancer he did a, did a big free concert i think he was really 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 generous and really kind and sad it's just really sad. it's just it's so sad i was devastating it was christmas day wasn't it it was yeah. pretty, uh, in the evening and that ruined christmas it was just horrible yeah but i think that's why that's why i think it's so important that we talk about these these things because a lot of people will say well george michael's nothing to do with his sexuality but so many of us have that same pattern yeah. Drugs, self-destructive behavior, and and I absolutely believe it's about yeah the way, the way society makes us feel growing up, and and it, it's, for some of us it's really hard to shake that off. So, uh, yeah, that is a reminder that yeah we need to ha we need to talk about all of this. Yes, I've done a lot of reading and and stuff on trauma in the last five or six years. I I had some oh, of that, cool. some of that kind of stuff going on in my life, and every it's all connected. All, absolutely. all of this stuff yeah. is is um, tied in together in ways we don't even realize sometimes. So this For was sure. super fun, Matthew. I could talk to you all day. Um, oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I hope people buy the, your book as their pr own pride celebration in their socially distanced uh, summer. I really hope so, yeah. It's a real honor to think that, yeah, I can, can uh, communicate with Americans in that way, yeah. And, and I really hope I can get over there. That would be wonderful. All right. Where well, do you live? LA, isn't it? Yeah, LA. I would love to meet you in person. Yeah, I'm in LA. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Will. Somebody, somebody I know used to work at Attitude lives there now, so yeah. I, I've been meaning to go. So, yeah, that would be really cool. Okay, final question. What dance song makes you feel prideful? Makes you want to get out on the floor and be happy, gay, dancing, prideful person? Oh, I don't know, you know. Um, um, I think Express Yourself is an That's amazing. That's what I was going to say. That's... Yeah, you can't beat that. It's an incredible pop song. I mean, who else would do a song like that now? It's, it's such a... That's such such a great kind of empowering song, isn't it? Yeah, it's not my favorite, 
but it's the one that I feel like has the most exciting message or the most prideful message in a way. So it's what I thought of. So yeah, yeah. And I know I'm of the moves. What's that? I'm of that era. Yeah. I needed to hear "Express Yourself" when I was 16. I so needed to hear that song. Yeah, I think we can always use that song. Thanks again to Matthew Todd. Check out his beautiful book *Pride*, and also his previous book. I just discovered *Straight Jacket* is on Audible, so I might check it out that way. Uh, it sounds really interesting. Okay, so this happened. As you know, the world is going to hell. Uh, we're in a po- post-apocalyptic hellscape prequel, um, but. Instead of just consuming news all the time and freaking out, I want to try to do something productive. So, um, I'm a fan of the podcast Pod Save America, and uh, they're doing a thing called uh, Adopt a State. So, for people that are in safe blue states, um, they're organizing groups of people to help flip the swing states uh, blue. And I am adopting my home state of Arizona. And I went through four sort of internet trainings and just learned a lot about how uh, campaign seasons are broken down and just got a lot of inspiration, basically. Stacey Abrams was one on one of the trainings, and she's very inspiring. Anyway, I'm looking for people to join me, to be on my team and uh, adopt Arizona with me, and we can do volunteer stuff together. I'm not sure what it's going to involve yet. It's all probably going to be virtual, so it'll be some texting and some phone calling and and stuff like that, but uh, I'd rather deal with the discomfort of bugging people than just watch the world go to hell and not do anything. So, if you want to join me and be on my team, I would love that. So you can email me at dennis at dennishensley.com, and um, you can be on my team and we'll do it together. So, there's that. And you can learn more about that at votesaveamerica.com, and uh, there's an Adopt-A-State page and check out Arizona. Also, you learn cool things about whatever state you're adopting, like, you know, what who's in the in the race and what are the interesting quirky things about that state that you need to know about. And it's interesting. So um, there you go. We'll see uh, how it goes. So that's enough for this week. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride and uh, happy Fourth of July. I may post before then, but maybe I won't. Um, and we'll talk to you next time with Dennis Anyone. Bye. <laughs>